You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up? We'll begin reading at Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Mark 11. Mark 11, verse 27. To the end of the chapter. Mark 11, verse 27 to 33. This is the word of the Lord. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe in him? But but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess this is your word. It is true. And by it we are to be instructed and shepherded and have our eyes fixed more on Christ. And so we pray that that is exactly what would happen as it is proclaimed. We pray that you would make me faithful and that all of us would be faithful to respond to your word as it is written. And we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is is a perennial tactic of people who appear to be religious to avoid submitting to the full authority of God by just asking questions. By asking the kinds of questions that maybe give the appearance that they're very interested in God, very interested in religious things, or perhaps even very interested in Christ. But really, it is a tactic to avoid or delay submitting to the full authority of God. Not the kind of questions to try to find out what the will of God is, so that they can follow it no matter the cost, and lead people into submission to God no matter the cost but to avoid obedience to Christ while appearing to be deeply spiritual and even devoted to Christ. But all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. First as the creator of all things, but also as the redeemer. He has all authority to command the church and the world. He has all authority to judge the church and the world. And he has all authority to save. To come to Christ is to embrace by faith all of those things as delightful. Dear church, be wary in your own heart. We ought to be be wary in our own hearts. And also in the words of Christian leaders. Be wary of efforts to find ways to embrace all of those things, the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are kids here, which is great, a good place for children to be. Now you can 
remember the story, even if you can't remember everything. You don't have to understand everything, but you can know the things that are most important. You remember the story. Jesus had just walked into the temple, and in the temple, he saw the leaders of God's people disobeying God in the temple. They were robbing people in the temple. They were telling lies about God in the temple. And Jesus walked into the temple, and he had a whip, and he started whipping those bad teachers, those bad leaders, those bad pastors, and he kicked them out of the temple. He took their money, their tables that had all kinds of money that they had stolen, and he tossed them up. He threw them, he tipped them over, and the money spilled all over. And the leaders were very upset because Jesus embarrassed them. Because he said to everyone that they were disobeying God. And so these leaders, instead of admitting that they were wrong and asking God to forgive them, they walked up to Jesus and told Jesus, what authority, how come you're the boss of me? How come you're the boss of the temple? Did you do this on your own or did God tell you to do this? And Jesus, instead of answering their question because it wasn't a real question, they were just pretending to care about God. And so he asked them a question. He said, what do you think about John the Baptist? Do you think that John the Baptist was from God? Or do you think that John the Baptist just made up things about God? And this was a real problem for those bad teachers. The real problem is that if they said that John was from God, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? John the Baptist said, you should trust in Jesus. He's the Messiah. But they didn't. But they were also afraid of all the people because the people knew that John the Baptist was a prophet from God. And so instead of telling the truth, they said, we do not know. And then Jesus said, well, then I'm not going to answer your question because it wasn't a real question. Now, kids, some people pretend they're asking real questions, but they're actually just trying to find a way to disobey God. It's actually true that some pastors do this, and it's really sad. They try to trick the church into ignoring some parts of the Bible, and they're really bad pastors. But they pretend they're just asking questions, but they're really just trying to trick people. The Bible is very clear that Jesus loves real questions about God. He loves it when you ask your mom and dad real questions about God in the Bible. He asks you when you, he really loves it when you really want to know these things. Jesus loves real questions about how to become one of God's kids and what should we do if we belong to Jesus. He loves those questions. And so he wants to protect people from bad leaders who just pre ask pretend questions that aren't real questions about God. Our first point today is this, Jesus has authority to judge the church and the world. Jesus has all authority to judge the church and the world. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. We'll just see this. And they came again to Jerusalem, of course, that's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them. 
Now, what did they mean by these things? Well, the most obvious thing that they meant is the fact that the last time Jesus was in the temple, he caused, he made a big mess. Jesus walked into the temple with authority. Jesus walked into the temple and he forbade things in the temple. He forbade certain activities in the temple. He said, that's wrong, this is right. That's wrong, this is right. Jesus demanded biblical obedience regarding the temple. But not just this. This isn't the first time that the authority of Jesus was questioned by these teachers, by these religious leaders. Other examples would be Jesus' teaching about divorce. He corrected them. They had an unbiblical view of divorce, and he, he corrected them and said, this is God's view of divorce. They had an unbiblical view of lust and sexual sin. And Jesus, with authority, corrected their view and showed that the Bible disagreed with them. They had an unbiblical view of what it meant to honor your parents. And Jesus corrected them and showed that they had an unbiblical view of honoring their parents, and on and on and on. And so it could have meant that they were just talking about overturning the stuff in the temple. But it also means, because that's just representative of what Jesus was doing, Jesus' authority to correct the church, and not just the church, but ultimately the world. What we want to see here is that Jesus was actually exerting the authority of Scripture. Jesus was not actually giving new laws and teaching. When Jesus corrected their view of lust, where did he go to demonstrate this? He went to the Old Testament. When Jesus, last week we talked about Jesus cleansing the temple. When Jesus corrected their view of what was going on in the temple, when he cleansed the temple, where did he go? He went to Isaiah to show this. Jesus was not introducing new teaching. He was fulfilling the law of God. Jesus was the one appointed by God to execute authority. Not to create new rules, but to insist that the church and the world follow God's rules. Jesus was the one to appoint, uh, appointed to judge God's people. First of all, in the Old Covenant, that would have been Israel. Before Christ came, it would have been Israel. He was appointed to judge God's people, to tell them what was wrong and right, and to insist that they do that and even execute punishments. And so too in the new covenant with the church. But Jesus, as the God of Israel, is also appointed the one to judge the entire world. In Matthew 28, our great commission passage, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and Israel is given to me. No, he doesn't say that. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, Jesus was the authority. Jesus did not assume this authority on his own. He didn't wake up one day and say, I choose to be the authority of the church in the world. Jesus' authority was established, and it was proven. First of all, his authority was established by the Old Testament prophets. They all promised of the day when the Messiah would come, who would be the judge of the people of God and of the entire world. They showed what his ministry would be like, what his authority would be like. But the Old Testament prophets also established the identity of the Messiah, which tribe he would come from, which place he would be born, 
when he would be born. Daniel predicts when he would be born. Which place he would grow up in. Which place he would flee from when he was a child. What kind of miracles he would do. What kind of teaching he would do. All of these things were established. He did not take this authority himself. The Old Testament showed that he was that. And then, of course, he, he performed all those signs and wonders not just showing how powerful he was, but to show that the Old Testament was actually testifying that he was the Messiah. Jesus also, his authority was established by his life of perfection. You know, the only charge that could be brought against Jesus at his trial were essentially some true things that he actually said, and if they were true, then he was right. Claiming to be the Son of God would have been punishable by death if he was lying. Jesus lived a flawless life, a life of perfection in front of everyone to see. And so Jesus' authority was established. They had every reason to believe that Jesus was this authority, the one who could walk into the temple and say, this is what you are doing and it is wrong. But Jesus goes to John the Baptist, doesn't he, in this passage. And John the Baptist is the last and summary prophet of the Old Testament. Sometimes when we read in the Bible, we see the Old Testament, the, the New Testament starts at Matthew. And in a way, it kind of does. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of start a little bit in the Old Testament, don't they? Because it is before Jesus is born. We see that Elijah, the second Elijah, has to come, and that is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is like an Old Testament prophet, except he's in the New Testament. And his job is to speak on behalf of all the prophets who've ever prophesied in Israel. He is to speak on all, on all of their behalf. He was appointed to point to Christ and declared him to be the Messiah. At one point, John the Baptist points to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, He is the Son of God. John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, He is the bridegroom of the people of God. The people of God are like a bride, and he is the groom. John the Baptist said this very, very clearly. And so Jesus, which prepares us for our next point, Jesus asks them about John. Our second point is this. John, the Baptist's ministry, declared that all must be washed by Jesus. Let's read this in 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven, or was it from man? Answer me. So he points them to John the Baptist. Now, John's ministry was not unique, and it was unique. Well, let's look, first of all, how John's ministry was not unique, John the Baptist. He was a regular prophet in some ways. So first of all, he had a miraculous calling. John the Baptist was called miraculously, right? His dad sees an angel in the temple. His dad doesn't really believe it. His, his dad is unable to speak until John is born, and then he regains his speech when John is, uh, when John is, uh, is born, and he calls him John. John's ministry, his calling was miraculous. John was the same as the Old Testament prophets in that he proclaimed the same God. John proclaimed the attributes of God that were the same in the Old Testament. Same God, same love, same character. John also proclaimed the same law. 
John proclaimed the same law as the Old Testament prophets. What is right and what is God? What is wrong? What is pleasing in, in God's eyes and what is vile in God's eyes? John also proclaimed the same gospel as the Old Testament prophets, that there would be someone coming to die for the sins of God's people. He proclaimed the same Messiah. John's ministry in this way was not unique, but John's ministry was unique. He was the last prophet who spoke on behalf of all of them. In real time, this guy could actually point to the Messiah, stand beside the Messiah, and be like, this is the one we were talking about. See, he's there actually in the presence of the Messiah and be like, this is the one we were all talking about. But he actually has a unique ability to condemn the Pharisees and the teachers and leaders of God's people. Because the teachers and leaders of God's people, they, they would have said, oh, Zephaniah, Oh, Isaiah, we love them. Moses, we love them. Moses would affirm our ministry. We're on Moses' team. We're on Zephaniah's team. Oh, Daniel, absolutely. We agree with every Dan everything Daniel says. And you know what? Daniel would agree with everything we say as well. But what happens when you've got a prophet in the flesh standing right next to them and saying, no? A prophet right next to them and say, I'm speaking on behalf of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, and all of them, we don't agree with you. You are false. All the other prophets who were dead, they could sort of trick the people into saying, well, I mean, if you read it this way, and you say it this way, then Daniel agrees with us. But if you've got one of them standing in the flesh and pointing to them and saying, you are wicked, false teachers. Daniel had a unique ability to correct these teachers or sorry, John did, <laughs> had a unique ability to correct these teachers. He was here with them, and he could do them. And one of the things that John focused on was this idea of baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John baptized people. He, he baptized it says he baptized Israel essentially in the Jordan River. He kept baptizing them. And baptism with water was a, a sign or a shadow, a type that shows what you need to happen to you in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Baptism was, was the communication that you need to be washed. You're guilty. You have failed to obey God's commands. You are guilty and you desperately need to be washed of your sin. That's what baptism was meant to represent. That's why people screamed to John and he said, yes, you must be washed. We're all dirty, all of us. It's not like the most filthy people, the worst offenders need to be washed. And the rest of us, look, we don't need it. We're fine. John did not just require that the prostitutes and the tax collectors be washed he said, all of us are in the same boat. All of us stand guilty before a holy God. Every single one of us, our only hope for entering the kingdom of God is that the Messiah would wash us. This was a great offense to the religious leaders. They didn't think they needed to be washed to enter the kingdom of heaven. They believed they were already citizens. They were citizens by virtue of their obedience. We've done a very good job of keeping the law of God. Thank you very much. And John said, no. The same way for anyone to get into the kingdom of heaven is the same way for everyone. You must be washed. But not just with water. What did John say about Jesus? John said, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize with 
the Holy Spirit. Baptism with water was never meant to wash anyone's sins away, but to point to the Messiah who every single person needed. Every single person without exception needs their sins washed away by the Messiah, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, dear friends, Jesus has the sole authority to rule. He is the one who inherits heaven and earth. Jesus gives the law. He's the one who has the sole authority to determine what is right and what is wrong. We don't get to argue with Jesus about that. Jesus tells us what actual, how we're supposed to handle truth, the question of truth. Jesus tells us about what we are to do in thinking about justice, what is justice and what is not justice. Jesus is the one from whom we learn what does it mean to honor our parents. Jesus tells us how we are to treat other ethnic groups. Jesus tells us how to handle questions of sexuality. Jesus is our sole authority to rule. But dear friends, he's also our, the sole authority to save there is no other Savior. No one else has authority to save except for Jesus, the one who died for the sins of the world. And then prove this by taking his life up again after he died three days later. He is the one with the sole authority to save, not other religions. No other versions of Christianity where people take some and leave out other things. Oh, we don't need to be washed by his blood. We just need to improve ourselves. Now, this is quite a confrontational thing for Jesus to say. How do you handle that when you hear this? Jesus is the sole authority to judge, and he's the sole authority to save. That is very in your face. How do you respond when you hear that? What is your response when it confronts you? This is a critical thing to consider. Because when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, when the chief priests heard this, rather than submitting to the authority of the one that God gave authority, they questioned it. And not asking sincere questions to see if he really was the Messiah, but they were offended that he could judge them. They were offended that he said they needed to be saved. And dear friends, we see this in our own hearts as well. We see this in our own hearts as well. When we are confronted by God's word, when I am personally confronted by God's word, I admit there is something within me that rather than just accepting and submitting to Christ's rule, I am prone to look to all kinds of silly explanations as to why I, do, I shouldn't have to follow that. That exists not just in the Pharisees, in the scribes, in the chief priests, and the Sadducees, dear friends, that exists in the hearts of every person, Christians included. It brings us to our third point. Christ does not honor insincere questions. Christ does not honor insincere questions. Now, first we want to talk about how sincere, humble questions are actually invited with Christianity. In fact, those questions are prompted. For instance, in the Old Covenant, 
if somebody claimed to be a prophet of God, they had to prove this before anyone took them seriously. For a prophet, you were considered guilty until proven innocent. No one was required to listen to you as a prophet until you could demonstrate miraculously that you actually were. God prompted these questions. He does not love this idea of blind faith. He wanted prophets to demonstrate this was, and he proved that these were prophets. This is an evidence-based religion. God set up the Old Testament in such a way that when the Messiah came, he could be somebody who was proven to be the Messiah. He set it up so that when he came, there would be no doubt that people could examine the Old Testament and see that, yes, he was the one that God was promising all along. God did not appreciate, nor did he set up a situation where you just have to try out messiahs one after the other. Where a guy would stand up and declare himself to be the Messiah, you just have to trust him. No, God loves this idea of not blind faith, but informed faith, of evidence-based faith. God set it up that the Messiah had to be proven such by all the Old Testament and then by his life to show that he was the Messiah. And so Christianity is a religion that actually invites questions, invites sincere questions to see truly, is this actually the Son of God? Is this actually the one that God promised? How can I be saved? How do I know that he is the one that God promised? And God, over and over in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, also in the New Testament, said, I am the one you can trust because I know the end from the beginning. I will tell you things that happened before they happen, and I will give my prophets miraculous power. But we know that this is not what was happening with these religious leaders. They were not actually asking sincere questions. How do we know this? Well, we can see this from the text and the context. First of all, Jesus had already demonstrated his authority. Was this question asked after or before he fed the 5,000 families at one time? After. Was this question after or before he fed the 4,000 families at one time? Was this question asked, asked, asked uh, before or after Jesus had healed multitudes in every single city that he went to? On and on and on and on. This question was already asked, and in legal terms, asked and answered. He had already answered their question. He had already demonstrated which authority. But the, the way we find out from this particular text that they were not asking a sincere question is how they respond. Let's look again at verses 31 to 33, and you'll see there's evidence here. It wasn't an actual sincere question. We're not really wanting to know if Jesus' authority came from God. Look at, look at this, verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why do you not believe him? Why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here we have clear evidence that these were corrupt leaders who did not fear the Lord. Who did they fear? 
They feared the crowd. We know from other parts of Scripture that they didn't just fear the crowd. They also feared Caesar. They feared Caesar. They feared losing wealth. And they feared the crowd. They did not fear God. If they believed John was an actual prophet, they should have submitted to him. That's what, that's what they should have done. And John said Jesus was the Messiah, okay? Now, if they did not believe John was, the, uh, John was a prophet, if they did not believe John was a prophet, and they were men who feared the Lord, and the crowds thought John was a prophet, what should they have done? They should have said John is not a prophet. They should have been real men, real men of God, with real courage, who didn't fear the crowd and feared God. And so if they truly did believe John wasn't a prophet, no matter what the cost, they should have stood against the crowd and said, John is not a prophet. So they didn't try to answer the question honestly. That wasn't even part of their discussion. The discussion was, how could they avoid getting killed? Or how could they avoid admitting that they were wrong? How is this going to affect us? They don't ask, what would we need to change? What would the pagan rulers be upset with us if, if we agreed with this? Would the crowds be upset with this? And here we see that Jesus is applying the wisdom of the Proverbs that Kevin read from us, for us this morning. Don't honor a fool. Now, this is something that Jesus applied to the Pharisees. But dear friends, that can also be something that we can apply to our own hearts. Don't distract yourself with foolish questions and insist that those foolish questions are the thing that is preventing you from obeying God. And Jesus diagnosed the heart behind that question. Jesus didn't play along with their religious question. It had the appearance of godliness. I'm asking questions about God. I am a theologian. You should trust me. But Jesus does not want us to be troubled by their insincere questions or concerns. But dear friends, he also does not want us to be troubled by insincere questions or concerns by leaders in our day. The primary application of this passage is to teachers and leaders and influencers in the church. That's the primary application of this, of this passage. This teaches us how to view leaders and teachers, maybe in the church, maybe who are official leaders in the church, maybe who are official leaders in another church, maybe who are unofficial leaders on the YouTube, or maybe just friends who don't want to be called leaders, but they want to influence you. And so they trouble you with questions. This is a major problem in our day. Leaders who claim to be sincerely followers of Jesus. Since I'm sincere. And they trouble the church with false, sincere questions. Some examples would be something like this. Well, God... Would God really punish people in hell? I'm just asking the question. It just doesn't seem like the God of, of Scripture would do that to me. It just doesn't seem like, that doesn't seem like God's character, that He would punish people in hell, you know? Rather than answering a fool in their folly, Jesus would suggest that we would go to the question of authority. You could respond. 
Would people deserve it if God did send them to hell? What do you think about that? Or do you think Jesus believed that God sent people to hell rather than arguing with them about it? Or did the biblical authors believe this? You see, those kinds of questions about the authority of Scripture and the authority of Christ stop that discussion in its tracks. Because I promise you that every single Christian leader who says that God doesn't punish people in hell also does not believe in the authority of Scripture. But they will not tell you that ahead of time. You will have to find that out by asking them questions or ignoring them. Or, very popular in our day, even in the evangelical church, to say that God did not punish Jesus on the cross. He didn't punish Jesus on the cross. Jesus was just an example of how to love people. And to, a, to somebody who asks that question or just floats that out there, you could just ask, does the Bible teach that God punishes sinners? Did Paul think that God was, uh, God was punishing Jesus? Did Isaiah teach this? Rather than engaging their question as if you and they are the authorities, just direct back to Scripture. Who is your authority? Another one popular in our day, even in churches that call themselves evangelical. Uh, the Bible can contain errors and still be the Word of God. Rather than arguing about that, you can just ask the same kind of question Jesus did. Was that Jesus' view of the Bible? That's all you have to ask, because it wasn't Jesus' view of the Bible. Or you could say, should we not share Jesus' view of the Bible? Another one in our day, the Bible does not forbid same-sex marriage. Rather than acting as if you and that person are the authority, defer to Scripture. And you could just ask, does the Bible define marriage as being one between one man and one woman? Does the Bible do it? Because it does. Does the Bible condemn sexual activity outside of marriage? It does. Does the Bible condemn homosexuality? It does. Did the Old Testament define that term, sexual morality, as including homosexuality? And did Jesus assume the Old Testament was true? Yes. You might even ask this question. How would the scripture have had to be worded in order to convince you of this? And would you obey it if it was written that way? On and on and on we go. We see this as a, an epidemic in the church. Leaders who deny a timeless teaching of the church will always deny the authority of Scripture. And yet they will not tell you. They will not introduce the question that way. By the way, my name is Derek. I deny the authority of Scripture. Also, I think that Jesus wasn't punished. They won't do that. They'll start with the other thing to confuse the actual issue when it really is about authority. A real and present danger in our day is this question of deconstruction. Maybe you've heard this term, deconstructing. Deconstructing is the term given to somebody who was raised in an evangelical church who believed the Bible and believed the gospel, and yet is just, just you know, deconstructing and then building that up in a more solid way. No, 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 I'm not rejecting the faith, I'm just deconstructing. I just want to get rid of all of my assumptions and then build it up from the bottom really on a solid bedrock. 
Now, the reason this is so popular is that there are a lot of people making money off of this. A lot of people, these deconstructor helpers, but they're not helping in any way. They will not tell you what the end game is. The end game is that you reject the God of the Bible. But they bring in lots of people raised in the church who don't know ahead of time to ask the right questions to identify if this is someone I should trust or I should not trust. The question, just like Jesus asked these leaders, is what is your authority? Would you submit to Christ if you knew for sure he said something? Would you submit to Isaiah, who is a prophet of the Lord, if you knew for sure he said these things? Dear Christian, I want to I ask, do you have a question? Bring it humbly to the Lord. Bring it humbly to the Word. Has someone troubled your faith? Ask your, your elders or pastors and give them the opportunity to show how the breadth of Scripture answers that question because I guarantee you those who are troubling you with, you faith, with your faith will not embrace the whole of Scripture they will pick one or two things isolated from the rest and try to confuse you. Resolve only to get counsel about the Word of God from somebody who believes all of it, embraces all of it, and who's willing to show you how all of it answers that particular question. For Jesus, all he had to do was point to John. Do you agree with John? No? Well, then let's just leave that question. Do you agree with Isaiah? No, then I don't, I don't need to talk to you about homosexuality. I don't need to talk to you about the gospel in terms of as, treat you as a Christian leader. Now these questions leaders throw out are usually very flippantly and, and mocking, almost as if they assume that these, these questions do not have answers. But dear friends, they do. Questions like, how can a loving God send people to hell? As if that they don't want an answer. They don't want an answer. They want that just to resonate and they think the answer is assumed. But dear friends, that question is answered. It's answered very clearly and broadly and deeply in Scripture and most plainly in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross, the gospel, where the justice of God and the mercy of God and the love of God all meet perfectly where Paul says in Romans that Christ died, he suffered for us, so that God could be just and the justifier of those who have faith, those sinners who have faith. Or the gospel that says that while we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Dear friends, Christ demonstrated very clearly that he had authority to judge the church and the world by his life his death, and his resurrection. And he clearly proved that God was a loving God. And God was a just God. And God, at great cost to himself, paid for the sins of those who belonged to Christ. Our fourth point is this. Christ redeems the insincere. Christ redeems the insincere. 
Sometimes we look at these passages and we laugh at the Pharisees and the tax collectors, or not the tax collectors, the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees. Sometimes we look at these and laugh, and it is right, what they're doing is laughable. Pretending to be sincere while actually knowing they're going to deny what God says anyways. And it's good for us to do that, but we should only do that while we realize that this has implications for ourselves as well. Because this room is full of people who have avoided the truth that we knew was true, starting with the man behind the pulpit. This is true for all of us to one degree or another, where we have avoided commands of God that we knew we were avoiding. That is true for those who are not believers. In Romans 1, God tells us very clearly that even those who've never heard of the gospel, never even heard the Bible, know that there is a God. They know that he rules over all things. They know that he is the one who has authority to make the law and to judge, and they know that they are guilty. The Bible is very clear that those who've never read the Bible know this is true. But it is also true for us who have become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This sin of being insincere of delaying obedience because we have a question to distract when our goal is not really to submit to the God who created heaven and earth. That sin of insincerity is one that Christ died for. So when you see it in your own heart, know that you can be forgiven for it, but not just forgiven. When Christ dies for a sin, it's not just to forgive it, it's to redeem you. In this passage, we are told that it is the chief priests who are among the people who approach Jesus with this terribly false, lying, hypocritical question. Who were offended that he came into the temple and judged them for what they were doing. They were so embarrassed and had such a fear of man and had such a fear of Rome and had such a fear of poverty that they denied the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, we learn the conclusion of this story. In Acts chapter 6, we read that after the Lord Jesus had died for the sins of enemies and had risen from the dead on the third day and had poured out his spirit on the church and the church proclaims the gospel far and wide, loud and boldly, it says that a great number of the chief priests became obedient to the gospel. So if this is you, know that Christ has come to forgive an insincere heart and to transform you, to give you the heart that desires to hear the voice of Christ no matter the cost, to obey the voice of Christ in Scripture no matter the cost, to trust whatever He says and to bank your life on it no matter the cost. He has died for those sins. We see this in John chapter 27 very clearly. It's the best chapter in the Bible. Fight me. John, 20, John 10 verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This doesn't mean that you're going to hear what God talking in your head. It means that you hear God's word, and you hear it as the voice of the good shepherd, the one who's already laid down his life for you, the one who has died to redeem you from your insincerity. You hear it, and you will just follow him no matter the cost. Yes, we need to be, to use some Christianese, good Bereans. 
which means we do need to determine if something is actually in Scripture or not, but that it is settles it for us. The God who created the heavens and earth, the seas and all that are in them, He said this. The God who designed the universe in ways that we're still discovering, in wisdom that we're still discovering, in minute detail that we're still discovering, in vastness that we're still discovering, the God who created the universe and sustains it, settles it, that's, that settles it. More than that, the God who looked on vile, guilty enemies and instead of destroying us as he ought to have done and became a man and became a servant everything he did was not for his benefit the way a servant everything he did was for the benefit of sinners the perfect life and reputation he earned was for us the perfect life of sincerity that he earned was for us And then he was crushed for our sin. He was damned for our rebellion against God. He was crushed and experienced hellish agony on the cross for our insincerity. Dear friends, if ever you meet a man who has done that for you, whatever comes out of his mouth, you can trust. No matter if it would cause the crowds to yell at you and kill you, your family to hate you and mock you, no matter if it costs you your life, whatever the good shepherd says, you can trust. As we sang, the cross is a pure fountain. So dear friends, do not pay attention to voices who give you reason to stray from that fountain give you reason to deny him, to ignore what his words are. But only those who drive you to the God of the universe and the one who God has given authority over all things to judge, to rule, and to redeem. So flee from this impulse that you see in the Pharisees and the chief priests and run to Christ. He loves sincere questions about whether or not he is the Messiah. He loves those. And he's not afraid that you ask them because he is sure that you will find the answer to be true. So be careful. Be careful of wolves in sheep's clothing who will act very sincere and who will look to be genuinely religious and genuine theologians and genuine Christians and genuine followers of Christ, ask the same kinds of questions in your own head of them. And if you need to, ask it of them. Only those who would die for the voice of the Good Shepherd are those who you should follow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you sent Christ even though we were your enemies, to be the good shepherd of the sheep. And Lord, we confess that we are prone to wander. We feel it, prone to leave the God we love, the God who has already laid down his life for our sins. We are still prone to distract ourselves with insincere questions or pay attention to the men who 
Give us reasons not to follow Christ if following Christ would be costly. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us your spirit to tune our ears to the voice of the good shepherd found in scripture. And Lord, we confess that insincerity and we pray that you would wash it off of us. Give us hearts that desire to submit to whatever Christ says through whatever it may cost us because we know he has paid for our sins and in him alone is found the words of eternal life. We pray that you would grant us repentance and ears to hear your word. We thank you for your mercy and we pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name.